Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and oh, it is perfect as usual. We have a very busy week this week, so I'm going to dig right into today's Q&A uh, that comes from Alan and Alan's asking a pretty common question of late. A lot of folks are, are moving into this virtual online realm of, of training and coaching. And so there's a lot of questions as to how this should be done. And so Alan asks, what advice can you give me um, on what online assessments I should use? And so right away, Alan, your, your question infers a couple of things. Um, number one, that you're seeing the online situation as, as significantly different. And I realize that the constraints are a little bit different than, than the in-person interaction. Um, so I understand that part, but um, from, from an assessment standpoint, um, what we're not looking at is a, is a cookbook situation of, oh, if, if this, then that. And I think that goes for any assessment, whether you're doing it in person or, or whether we're, we're doing it virtually. And so what, what we may actually have then is a gap in understanding or a gap in knowledge that is presenting a limitation as to where you feel most successful or, or most safe. And so what we need to then fall back on is a process um, that is based on what you know or what you think you know and the experience that you bring into that situation. So step one under these circumstances is being aware of your own capabilities. So, so this is somewhat painful at times in regards to actually sitting down and spending time in your own head and understanding what your capabilities truly are um, in regard to what type of a client where you feel the, the greatest level of success and confidence. And this is where your energy should be focused. So if I was to give a, a wild example, a general surgeon does not perform brain surgery because that is a very specific set of skills. And so he does not take on those, those patients that would have a brain-related issue that would require surgery. And so again, it's like, do you have an experience that lends itself towards a specific type of client? And right away, your confidence will, will, will improve. And then the questions that, that you ask um, become much more easily um, answered or, or the, the riddles solved. And so again, this is also the first step of marketing. So if you have a specific clientele where you feel this great level of confidence, this allows you to refine your message. So regardless of the, the type of marketing that you do, whether it be through social media, messaging, or email, or traditional uh, methods, the, the goal is to always attract one specific type of client that you feel the, the greatest level of, of confidence in, in working with. And so again, this is, this is a really, really big deal. So uh, again, I, I think that a lot of people are trying to maybe overstep their bounds or don't recognize that they're overstepping their bounds when they're trying to attract certain types of people because they say, oh, I want to work with everybody when the reality is you should probably just stay in your wheelhouse and then be infinitely successful with that group of people and you'll get more of those people. Now, if you are young in the industry and you say, I just don't have the confidence to work in this environment, or I don't have the confidence to work with any specific clientele, then you have just identified where you need to go. You need to, to take part in some form of an internship or a mentor-mentee relationship or an apprenticeship where you can safely gain the experience that you need 
to to work with any client on any level and so um, we can move to a step two then that is based off this this first step of being aware of what your capabilities are is only work with those types of clients that that you have this great level of confidence so so again you have to be honest with yourself and you have to know yourself um, because of my physical therapy background, because I've been doing this for more than 30 years, I tend to get a very complex type of client that has an extensive medical history, maybe multiple surgeries or multiple movement related problems and painful conditions and such. And so I have sort of earned the, to work with, with that type of a clientele. And so if you're unsure as to what type of an assessment you should be using, then perhaps you should work with those clients that don't have any significant history that might interfere with their fitness program. And so right away, you've just simplified your process. So you need the minimum of, of any form of assessment beyond their ability to execute some of the, the most basic uh, of exercises. And, and so again, you know, you have to identify um, your your capabilities. You have to have some level of self-awareness. Now, let's just say that you're presented with a situation that you might not be, be comfortable with or, or qualified for. What, what should you do? Well, this is where referring out to someone that might be more qualified is actually a great move on multiple levels. Number one, you develop a relationship with somebody that may have experience that, that you can gain from them. And you develop that relationship such that now they would refer back to you when they have a client that they consider like, oh, that person's not in my wheelhouse. Maybe they're a little bit too easy for me and I can send them back, back to you. Um, you also make a friend and a client where they say, wow, I really respect the fact that, that, that you don't feel confident enough to work with me, but you have somebody that, that can help me. I'm going to send you my friend who is a little bit less complicated than me. And so now you've developed two relationships. You've developed really good word of mouth and, and a great deal of respect among those people uh, that you seek to work with. Finally, what I would say is, is that um, regardless of where you are, you want to try to remain the student. So, so you're not stuck at your level of qualifi qualification. You're not stuck with your current level of capabilities but you must deepen your understanding, you must gain knowledge, and you must gain experience. Um, there's a great story about Kirk Hammett. If you're a Metallica fan, you know who Kirk is. He's the guitar player for, for Metallica. And when he first joined Metallica, um, he thought he wasn't good enough. So think about this. Arguably, at the time, one of the, the most popular rock bands in the world, he's the lead guitar player, and he doesn't think he's good enough. So what he did is he hired Joe Satriani, who was another amazing guitar player, as his teacher. And so Joe challenged Kirk to, to actually get better. So we all have to go there, regardless of, of our level. We must always try to remain, remain a student. That's one of the reasons why Mike Robertson and I have IFAST University. So we're trying to help pros get to the next level. We're trying to improve all of their 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 understanding their capabilities and their ability to, to execute. It's why I work with mentees all over the world. Um, really, it's kind of weird. Uh, the internet made the world a small place. So I'm apparently now very popular in Europe, which is kind of fun. Um, but again, that's why I work with, with those people one-on-one. -on -one. It's that they're already experienced, they already have some capabilities, and they want to get better. Um, another great example is uh, Austin, who was just recently my iFast fellow in the Purple Room, and he was also a gym intern, so he truly humbled himself. He said, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't confident in these certain areas, and so he took it upon himself to, to find ways to make himself better by going through our internship programs. 
Um, so again, it's like understand who you are, have some self-awareness, recognize what your strengths are and emphasize those. Only work within those those realms where you feel the greatest level of confidence and experience the greatest level of success, but don't rest on your laurels. You can always get better. You can always expand what those capabilities are and eventually work with a much broader clientele. That should be what guides you in your process, whether we're talking about online assessments or assessments in person. So hopefully that lends you a little bit of understanding and, and some, some useful knowledge. And then we will see you tomorrow. Have a great day. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Sun is out. Long walk today. Very exciting. Um, I got a really good question um, for today. We haven't talked about this, I don't think, in, in either quite a while or maybe never. I'm not really sure. Um, this is from John, and John has a question about relative elbow motion. So this is a, uh, a thing that I think people look at elbows so differently than, than other things, and I don't think we have to. But John says, I've heard you mention how examining relative motion of the elbow is very similar to the knee. I've had great success with utilizing the knee mobilization you posted for individuals who are unable to capture tibial IR on their own. Could the same concept be applied at the elbow? Is valgus carrying angle at the elbow the same as knee valgus as you have previously described? John, you are totally on point here. So one of the things that we have to appreciate is that all joints move on helical axes. So, so they, they all have a rotational element to this. And so the elbow is no different, but I think that the visual representation of how the elbow moves throws people off and so they kind of think of it as, as being something different or, or it oversimplified um, in regards to just a, a simple hinging motion. And so then it's kind of like um, when, you're, when you're missing some elbow range of motion, they kind of treat it like a knee where they, they just push it harder into the traditional flexion extension rather than actually appreciating the fact, fact that it does turn. So if we take a, a peek at a, a knee valgus, typically what we're gonna see is we see this femoral internal rotation orientation on top of the tibial external rotation. And that, that's what produces a lot of this, this valgus orientation. And you are correct, sir, that, that the elbow is, is no different. The thing that we wanna appreciate in the, in the physical structure of the elbow, if we look at the trochlea of, of the elbow, it looks kind of like a like a twisted hourglass, if you will. And so what this does is it does give this the the ulna this this rotation as it moves through through the excursion of traditional uh, flexion extension. And so again, it's like we have to look at this thing as as a rotational uh, joint, just like everything everything else does. Um, so when we're going to see this elbow valgus orientation what we're gonna see is we're probably gonna see a distal humeral ER relative to a forearm pronation orientation. And so one of the dead giveaways that you're gonna see is the prominence of the medial epicondyle. And, and so you'll see sort of like this, this bulk of the, the pronator teres musculature overlaying this, but you'll, you'll definitely see the prominence of, of the medial epicondyle. 
You may also see this go all the way down in, into the hand where you're gonna see a, a, a thumb that's gonna have trouble externally rotating. So, so the, the, the people that, that have this, this elbow orientation also can't create the little pistol position with the index finger and the thumb because they can't externally rotate the thumb. So this is, I believe, traditional thumb extension. And so these people are, are in what we would consider traditional thumb abduction which I would call I would call this IR I would call this ER just for the for the sake of argument to stay in our in our transverse plane um, um, concept there. Um, but the advantages of recognizing this this rotational influence at the elbow is now we can have effective strategies to recapture all of these these relative motions. Now. I would also uh, caution you that don't look at the elbow in isolation. You still need to look at this thing um, systemically. So we're probably gonna have to look at axial skeletal orientation. We're gonna have to look at scapula and shoulder orientation um, before we get to the elbow. Because depending on the, the proximal strategy, we're gonna have to decide whether we're gonna use something that's going to be inhalation-based or exhalation-based. So an inhalation-based activity would be one of our curling variations. So instead of looking at things like biceps training and triceps training, we can now look at this thing as recapturing the relative motions. So your, your typical curling activity is gonna be associated with trying to recapture an inhalation-based strategy. Your triceps activities are gonna be your exhalation-based strategies. So, for instance, if we're trying to drive an inhalation-based strategy, recapture the relative motion of the elbow, this is where we get to use our, our, all of our cool little curl activities that you've probably seen. I got a bunch of stuff up on YouTube um, in regard to, to some wrist and, and elbow um, reorienta reorientation strategies. So check those out. Um, if, if we need to drive a little bit more of an exhalation strategy, we can start to use our side plank variations, but I would also make sure that you attend to hand and wrist position under these circumstances, because again, it is going to be an influence in your ability to recapture all of those relative motions. Um, so hopefully, um, John, that gives you a little hint as to where you need to go with this thing to recapture the relative motion of the elbow. It's no different than any other joint or any other um, area of the body that needs this relative motion to restore comfort in all of our movement options. So um, if you have any questions about that, please post them to uh, askbillhartman at gmail.com or throw them up here on the Instagram or YouTube, wherever you're watching this. And I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Um, got a really good question for, for today's q and I've been going back and forth with Adam on AskBillHartman at gmail.com in regard to some questions that he had about his 13-year-old son, who I believe is a baseball player, since Adam heard me talking with Eric Cressy um, on Eric's baseball podcast. And, and so Adam had questions about things like key performance indicators and assessments for his 13-year-old son. And so one of the things that I thought would be interesting to clarify would be how we manage these younger athletes um, compared to the more mature, because the conversation I was having with Eric was, more, was about a more mature athlete and how we would handle those situations. And I don't think that, that, that parents have been given a, a reasonable playbook as, as to how best to manage some of the, these young athletes, because I, I think there are better, better ways to handle this. 
um, especially with the, the growing concern over these adult type injuries that we're seeing in young kids. I could go another lifetime without seeing a 14 year old kid with a Tommy John surgery. Um, so um, what I did this morning is I reposted a blog from 2014 that talks about this very specific topic of long-term athletic development. Um, so there's some, there's some opinions in there and a little bit of structure to give you, give you an, an idea, but, but let's review things a little bit. Early on, when we talk about really young kids, we're talking about you know, six, seven, eight years old, where, where they start to get exposed to some organized sports. Um, most of the training, if you will, would be free play. Um, we want them to be exposed to a broad number of, of physical activities, a lot of physical problems to solve, and just expose them to a lot of movement and let them figure a lot of this stuff out all by themselves. So we don't need to, to structure games. They need to be creative. And like I said, get them exposed to as many things as possible. This makes for a really, really smart child, first and foremost. And then, like I said, it exposes them to a number of different movement strategies that they will use later on in their development. If we had any structure to this, um, I would recommend that you expose your child to martial arts and gymnastics. And, I, I, and I, when I say this, I'm talking about the non-competitive kind, if you will, because um, the idea is not to develop the, the competitive um, overuse extensive type of training we just want to expose them to a lot of different styles of movement as they get into this this uh, preteen early teen stage this is where we can actually start to expose them to a structured training program but this is a learning to train situation so this is not about setting personal records in in weight lifts or worrying about top speed or anything like that what we're trying to do is we're trying to expose these kids to a structured training program. So again, they learn to train because in three to five years later, when they do get to this age of specialization, when they do have a more adult physiology and they're more adaptable to that type of training, now they're going to be ready for it. So we don't need to reteach them how to train. And so that's what this middle range is for. We wanna make sure that you're still exposing them to any number of, of, of sports and activities. So, um, limiting the number of, of exposures is probably a bad idea because it, when they are faced with something novel, that, that, uh, that movement that they may be exposed to that they are unfamiliar with because they don't have good problem-solving skills in regards to movement um, can be seen as threatening and it actually ultimately limits their level of performance. So again, if you think about some of the best athletes in the world, many of them were exposed to any number of sports early on in their careers. Um, so that's something, something to keep in mind. Formal assessments at this point um, are, are of minimal use. It doesn't mean that we never use them. It just means that they're not very valuable because when we think about the physiological development of, of kids, if I would assess you at th age 13 and I would come back and assess you at age 18, um, you're a totally different human at that point. So that 13-year-old assessment really didn't give me much information. So what we do is we're going to use a lot of observation um, in regards to, to just typical sports performance or as we're exposing you to the training process and you're learning that process, those will be our assessments. So we're actually gonna use the movements themselves as, as assessments. So in the later teen years, when after puberty, we've got a much more adult-like physiology that's more adaptable, then what we're gonna be looking at 
is training with the intention of raising performance. So the, the tolerance is there. So the one thing that we want to consider about, about, about little kids is that they have this broad adaptability, but they have a very low tolerance. And so um, what we want to make sure is we, we're limiting the specific exposures and we want to make sure that that stays broad scope through those, those early years. So they're ready, like I said, for the specificity of the later teen years. So um, Adam, I truly appreciate you asking questions about this. And, and I, I'm, I'm really glad we have the back and forth. I hope this sort of leads you in a direction, but I would say go to the blog today, read through that, um, that blog on long-term athletic development for a little bit more specific ideas and concepts. If you have any more questions, please uh, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. And uh, coaches and, uh, I'm sorry, Coffee and Coaches Conference call tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. every Thursday. Tomorrow's Chips and Salsa Day too, so that's exciting. You guys have a great day, and I'll see you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Thursday. This is the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and Dr. Mike, it is perfect as usual. That's one of my, my pet peeves with the with the lighter construction shoes is that you're like when you do change direction, you mm -hmm. have to slide inside the shoe because the the upper gives way where you just slide into the toe box, right? Yep. Or, yeah. or if you do get anything, you know, with, with anything, with a, a good, you know, midfoot construction, then the, the, the rear foot is mush, you know? And, and so it, it, nothing really, really uh, flips my skirt at this point. The, the, the thing that you want to be really, really careful of is that you don't try to use a straight ahead shoe for your agility-based activities. So like a running style shoe is a bad, mm. bad idea. And I think there's probably too many people that try to get away with that. Um, they're just not constructed to go side to side. Mm -hmm. you have, it, when you have a high heel to toe ratio or you have a sort of like the base of the shoe is widest at the bottom and then it narrows as it goes towards the heel, it's like all you mm -hmm. got to do is hit the outside edge of that shoe and you're looking at an ankle sprain. Mm -hmm. Do you guys remember the, the pump shoes? Did, did they have those when you were kids? I'm not as old as you, but yes, the pumps. Okay. Come on. Well, so I was already old by the time the pump shoes came out, and so I didn't. I I wasn't attracted to them because um, I didn't care whether I could dunk or not. And and uh, um, but the the nice thing about them is that they did give you that nice little secure feeling of of you know that 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 sense of the shoe around your foot. Yeah. And what do you think about? like these minimalist shoes then that have like pretty much nothing and it's just the, the foot in a in a casing i guess you could call it <laughs> like a solid foot <laughs> yeah um i think you have to earn them i think you know i i just think that that you you that's not for everyone and there's there's like a sect of people that, that they'll be perfectly fine with that earn, earn them earn them in what way well you have to be adaptable right that's an adapt. That's a very adaptable foot. Discuss uh, like arm position using like the, uh, the flexion arc. In general, you kind of talk about like reaching or how you essentially utilize that uh, to gain something that you're looking for in uh, exercise. Like, uh, okay. So, um, so what do you, what what do you want to acquire or reacquire? But yeah. So like, let's say you're trying to get uh, like lower. 
thoracic expansion. Okay. Uh, where, like, how would you place your arm, like, to drive something in exercises or something like that? And would you reach? Would you move? Would you, uh, you know, have an extra rotation aspect, internal rotation aspect? Like, kind of just overall, what your thought process besides just like zero sixty and that sort of jazz. Okay, so 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 let's let's think about. So you're talking about the the posterior lower? Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. So so there's a couple of ways that I, that I can go about this. I know that I need to expand the backside of the rib cage below the level of the shoulder blade, right? So that that is emphasized in the in the early phase of raising the arm up from your side, right? So in, in like the what we would say if we had to pick a number, we would say that first sixty degrees is going to be that influence, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. So so anything that where I position my arm in in that 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 relative angle okay is going to help promote that that expansion so i have to have a compressive strategy anteriorly to move the fluid volume posteriorly okay so so it like just take like a high to low kind of a cable press concept as i'm pressing down and reaching I would have to compress anteriorly to accomplish that task, which would promote the posterior expansion. Right? Yes. Okay. So that's one strategy. The other would be to create a compressive strategy where I don't want the air to go. Right? Would be um, through that middle range. So you think about like if, if, if I wanted to compress the, the dorsal rostral area around the scapula, I would position that arm through that roughly the, the 90 degree of shoulder flexion range, right? Plus or minus about 30 degrees. And that will create, like I said, that upper posterior compression. But it, what it doesn't do, it doesn't compress the posterior lower. So now I'm, I'm using another strategy that will block the expansion in one area and try to promote it in another. So there's there's multiple ways to go about this. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Like if you're okay. doing. Go ahead. You had you had mentioned also, I guess with this uh, in one of the videos about the old school, you know, open post chain extra rotation exercises. Yeah. How kind of how, how to restore? If you're doing something like a positioning of those sorts with like an isometric, either internal or external. Would that help drive one thing based on the actual like superficial strategies within the shoulders, like the cuff activity? Would that help kind of pull, would you say, like the scapula uh, off the ribcage to drive a like uh, a certain activity? So if I was in a zero to sixty range and I were to perform like a ISO ER with you know with, with some breathing, would yeah. that help open up even more because the scap is the rotator cuff muscle is going to be pulling? Scap away from the, th the thorax. Right. So, so the so the way the way that I perceive those exercises is not relative to the to the humeral motion, but what's happening between the humerus and the scapula. So, if you're doing like the traditional external rotation kind of a thing, or as you described, the isometric in, in that lower in that lower sixty degree range, as you as you promote uh, the external rotation. Um, at the, the humerus and scapula, the scapula are going to turn, right? 
So it's not the humerus that, that would be necessarily turning, but the scapula would turn right. and create space between them, between the two scapula, right? And so that would allow that posterior expansion to occur. Bill, have you played around much with the like the the angle of shoulder flexion in like the single arm like cable pec fly exercises a lot lately? What do you, What do you mean by like to to influence where you're gonna? I guess one side versus the other, where you're gonna move air better in in those type of exercises. Yes. Yes, very important, here you go, very important for creating end range rotations, okay? Because end range rotation is using a compensatory strategy to finish the turn, right? So the more extreme and the more forceful or the tighter the turn that has to take place, so when you think about like a change of direction, a very, very aggressive change of direction, when they're coming out of the cut to get that, the last bit of turn to reorient the body into a straight line, that requires that, that you, so we don't talk about this very much, but the scapular retraction towards the spine has to occur to, to um, create enough um, velocity out of the cut. If you don't do that, you don't get enough expansion to redirect into a straight line. And so when you talk about the, you're talking about like the single arm kind of a cable thing. Yeah. So the end range position of that is the position that you're going to use to produce the last, the last element of turn to redirect out of a cut. And, but again, if you just watch the arm position, You'll see them trying to move the scapula to, to create the turn because the scapula are those paddles that block things really, really well because they're very solid. They create a compressive strategy. And then if you know that if somebody's trying to retract their scapula to make a turn, you know they're trying to drive expansion on the other side. Question is, is do they even have expansion on the other side? Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and... It is perfect. All right. We are squeezing this one in between mentorship calls this morning, so I'm going to dig right in. we got a neck question. This is kind of exciting. I haven't had one in a long time. Uh, it comes from Adrian, and Adrian says, I have an athlete with a great deal of neck limitation who appears to be very compressed in the upper ribs. Are there any good tests that can lead me toward a solution or let me know that I'm making progress short of trying to assess neck mobility directly? Uh, does compression of the manubrium affect neck position and movement? So this is actually a really, really, really good question. Um, trying to assess neck mobility directly by, by hand can, can be somewhat unreliable. And if, if you're not a manual therapist and you're not constantly touching people, then it's difficult to, de to develop that feel. So it would behoove us to have some, some fairly reliable tests that would give us an idea of, of what might be influencing um, neck range of motion. And I, th and I think we do have a couple of really good ones so uh, you asked about the manubrium, and there's a great way to test whether we have this, this um, mobility in, in the manubrium. So when we have a down pump handle, the manubrium is going to follow a little bit later in the compensatory sequence. And so an easy test to determine whether we have a down manubrium is actually the old school aptly scratch test. So this is where you reach behind your back and you try to touch the, uh, the opposite shoulder blade. 
and this is internal rotation behind uh, behind the back, and actually access this range of motion, we have to be able to eccentrically orient some of this anterior musculature. So if you think about, if we're gonna pick on a muscle, clavicular pec, for instance, would have to be able to eccentrically orient for us to reach behind our back and touch that opposite shoulder blade. So uh, if it's concentrically oriented and creating a compressive strategy that's pulling the manubrium down, you're not gonna be able to reach behind your back. When we think about Another potential influence on, on the neck position, especially the lower cervical spine, we have to have dorsal rostral expansion to have normal rotation through the lower cervical spine. So our big test for that would be end range shoulder flexion. And so now we have two really powerful tests to let us know whether we're getting this anterior posterior expansion, especially in, in, the, in the upper rib cage. Now, from a strategy standpoint, we wanna monitor these tests as we're, we're intervening to make sure that we're, we're on the right track. But um, the first thing that, that we wanna look at is we're gonna have differences in, in our wides and in our narrows. And so when we think about the compensatory sequence um, and, and how they arise, so if we're looking at a narrow, uh, we may still have some upper dorsal rostral expansion in, in many cases. So their in-range shoulder flexion might still be good, but they're not going to be able to reach behind their back. So in this case, um, we're still gonna have some lower cervical rotation, but upper cervical rotation is going to be restricted. And so what you'll typically see is that typical forward head posture. We have an upper cervical extension, lower cervical flexion by traditional uh, representations, hyoid bone um, will, will be depressed. If we're looking at a wide under the same situation, you're probably gonna have dorsal rostral compression, again, based on the way that these compensatory sequences arise. Um, so in this case, we're gonna have a limited amount of lower cervical rotation, but we're probably still gonna have upper cervical rotation available to us, but this is gonna be a more military style posture where you're gonna see the, the, uh, the mandible uh, pulled, pulled backward actively, which is gonna pull the hyoid uh, bone up. Now, as far as the treatment training strategy goes, first step, let's not do anything that interferes. So we wanna eliminate that. So bilateral symmetrical pressing activities tends to be a bad idea because it's just gonna emphasize the, the compressive strategy that we may have um, that's pulling them, that manubrium down. If we have the, the dorsal rostral compression as well, then we wanna take away symmetrical pulling activities, especially things like face pulls, I's, T's, and Y's. Because if it's already compressed, we don't wanna emphasize more concentric orientation to drive more compression there. So when we go into the gym and we start to train these people, we're gonna start thinking about, for our wives, we're gonna use like a high-low cable press. So we're gonna play in this angle that would emphasize the, the inhalation capabilities, um, as well as maybe some, some say, chopping activities um, to again promote this, this posterior expansion. Once we can recapture that posterior expansion, now we can start to, to work on, on a little bit more of our reaching activities at 90 degrees and start to emphasize that anterior expansion. For the narrows, we're just gonna reverse the process. We're gonna start somewhere in this, in this like I said, 90 degree shoulder flexion reaching activities, and then we're gonna try to expand that, that posterior aspect of the thorax. So. Adrian, I hope this gives you some ideas to work with. Um, you've got a couple of tests that you can follow. You've got some strategy um, as well as a representation of probably what you're looking at. So if you have any other questions, please let me know at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Have a great Friday. Have an outstanding weekend. And I'll see you next week.